There is a desire in the heart of every person to return to the garden. That ever since God banished man from the garden and drove him away and placed the cherubim there with, with the flaming swords to defend the tree of life, man has in his heart, in his soul, in his essence, ached to return. I think, in fact, that's what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. That the pandemonium that we've seen and the chaos that we've seen are indicators of man's desire to return into the garden. The garden was a paradise. It was a place where there was no threat. There, it was a place where there was no death. It was a place in which there was peace and calm and refuge. And as we go and we storm the gates of Sam's, and we buy up everything that we can buy up, and we supply our houses and outfit our cars and gas everything up and, and bring everything. What we're trying to do is build a fortress, apparently out of toilet paper, <laughs> that in some way resembles the garden, that in some way brings us rest, that in some way promises us safety, that in some way promises us that we won't die. In other words, we're trying to make a man-made garden. We're trying to create a man-made garden. In the Bible, there is a particular city that often represents man's attempt to reconstruct the garden, man's attempt to rebuild the garden by his own ingenuity and his own wisdom and his own strength. And it's the city of Babylon. That Babylon has more gold than all of the other cities and it has more philosophers and more thinkers than all of the other cities. More cultures coming together with all of the wisdom of all of the different cultures to create what they believe to be the gateway to heaven, the gateway to the gods. It was the height of human ingenuity, the height of human strength, the height of human glory. And it is a case study. A case study for how profoundly we as sinners misunderstand our role in God's story. It is a case study for what humans are capable of and at the very same time what humans are incapable of. And so this morning where we're going to look is the very founding of that city. The beginnings of Babylon. Would you turn with me now to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. This morning we're going to read the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? God's word says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and there confuse their language so that they may not be able to understand one, one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Have you ever wondered what the world would look like if the serpent was the king? Have you ever wondered what the world would look like if the serpent took rulership over all of the creation, over all of the earth? You know, the truth is, is it wouldn't look any different. That it wouldn't look any different than it does now that mankind has taken over. That it wouldn't look any different than it does with Adam and Eve having first asserted their independence from God and asserted their lack of need for God. That they took responsibility for their own morality. That they took responsibility for their own good. That they took responsibility for their, their own actions. And by doing so, asserted authority over all of the earth. And at the end of Genesis 6, what does it say? It says, the wickedness of man is great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What would the difference have been if it had been the serpent on the throne? See, in fact, the serpent is on the throne, right? He is the ruler of darkness, the ruler of this fallen earth. And he is working through us. He is working through mankind to advance his own agenda. He is working through mankind to accomplish what he seeks to accomplish in the background, manipulating us and tempting us and corrupting us by appealing to the sin nature, the the broken heart, the the heart of stone that resides in us. The, The enemy is able to advance what he desires to do. And so we see through him, because of him, we misunderstand our role in the story. That just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like Cain in chapter 4, that what we want, what we want is to be our own God. What we want is to be in control, to be the main character of the narrative. And there's been some some specific ways, some specific characteristics about mankind that I think that we can see and we can identify here in Genesis 11 and we can identify here in the 21st century in the midst of, of Iron City, Alabama that reveal how it is we are trying to become the main character of the story. The first thing I want you to see is that we are self-promoting. We are self-promoting. I wonder how many of you are conspiracy theorists. I imagine there, there are some of you. I know John Blanton is a conspiracy theorist. And if you're into conspiracy theories, then what you have in Genesis 11 is the very first one. You have mankind coming together, conspiring to overthrow God. Conspiring to find a way other than the way that God has given them to go. And if you'll remember that Genesis is written originally for the people of Israel, the Hebrews, as they are going and they're trekking across the Sinai wilderness, having escaped the clutches of Egypt by the deliverance of God. Now they're on their way over to the promised land. And Moses writes down the long history of who they are and where they come from so that they can understand where they are in the story and what the story is supposed to be and and why it is that they shouldn't be worried about all that they see. 
They had left a nation in Egypt that was wealthy, affluent, powerful, diverse. They had left a nation that spoke a different language than they spoke. They had left customs that they didn't understand, but what they could see was that Egypt had prospered. Egypt had, had, had all of the trappings as appearing as though they were blessed, as though they were the ones that were in the know, as though they were the ones who were enlightened and had figured everything out. And so it would be easy as, as Israel was trekking across the wilderness, and, and in fact they do this, they go and they, they find hardship and they find uh, famine and they find hunger and they begin to long for Egypt again. They begin to long for the food, even though they had whips across their back, the conditions they believe are better in Egypt under the oppression of the Egyptians than they are under the kind, providing, protecting hand of God. And so having witnessed this, Moses, he goes and he reminds them, hey, this isn't new. This has happened before. And he begins to take them back to a land, a land that, that existed before Abraham, a land that, that existed before Egypt was the power that they were at the time as man had come together and so that they can understand why things were unfolding as they were. And he takes them back to the foundation of Babylon, the foundation of Babylon, man's conspiracy to build a new garden. Man's conspiracy to overcome his own weakness by his own strength. Man's conspiracy to go against the wishes of God and the word of God and the plan of God with his own wisdom and his own word and his own plan. And in the motivations of the, that, that we see as they build the tower, we can begin to understand how it is they want to usurp the authority of God. It gives us at least two motivations for the building of the city of Babel. The first motivation we see is that they want to make a name for themselves. They want to make the name for themselves. They are like many of us today. They want to be somebody. They want to go to Nashville with nothing but a guitar and have the story to tell in front of the tens of thousands. They want to go to Hollywood and be remembered as a legend with a star in the sidewalk on Beverly, in Beverly Hills. They want to leave a legacy, a placard with their name on it that will be passed down, emblematic of how great they were, emblematic of how smart they were, emblematic of, of, how, of how wise they were. And do you notice how it says that they build it? They're going to build this tower, and at the bottom of this tower, they're going to write the people of Babel so that every for every following generation and all of posterity will remember who they are. And it says in there, it says that they use, they use brick, not stone. They use brick, not stone. Now, what's significant about that? Because Moses is sure to point it out, isn't he? You see, in Babylon, Babylon is where they really began to, in Mesopotamia, is where they began to invent brick. That's where they invented brick. And it was the height of human ingenuity. It was a great discovery, the idea that they could take all the sand that they have and all of the, the clay that they have and they could come and they could fashion that together and they could use mortar and they could begin to, to build these incredible structures and they didn't have to quarry rock. They didn't have to carry it large distances. They didn't have to go through the laborious, slow process of, of heaping these tons of rocks up so that they could build their towers and build their cities. No, they could, they could fashion it right there. They could build it right there. It was, it was an incredible advancement. But do you know what would happen? The rains would come and the storms would come 
And these bricks that are made out of sand, they couldn't hold up to the weather. These bricks that were made out of sand, they would build these incredible structures that within just a generation or two would begin to show such signs of erosion that they would be unsafe for people to go in. It's the difference in what God makes and what man makes, isn't it? It's the difference in what God makes and what man makes. That you build things out of stone and we still have stone structures that date back to the original biblical times. We can go all around the globe and we can see stone structures that have stood for centuries, if not millennia. But if you go to Iraq today where Babylon was located, you'll see the remnants of these buildings that they've tried to rebuild time and again, time after time after time. And every time they rebuild them, they just erode again. There's irony in that, isn't there? That here they are, and they are building a structure that is to be their legacy for every future generation. And the rain washes it away. They're building sandcastles. They're building sandcastles. They're they're staking their hope, staking their legacy, staking their identity, staking their significance, staking their purpose on what amounts to sandcastles. And brothers and sisters, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. When we use the materials of earth to make a name for ourselves, we're building sandcastles. When we settle for sports and scholarships and promotions and plaques and heritage and names on buildings as the markers of our identity and the indicators of our significance, we're building a life out of sand. We're building a life that eventually the rain of, of, of time is going to come and wipe it away. So that our identity is compromised, so that our significance is washed away, so that our purpose is ultimately revealed to be null and void. That is, we are inheriting the conspiracy of Babel and we are passing the conspiracy of Babel on to the next generation as we teach our children to build their lives out of sand, as we teach our children to measure the effectiveness and the, and the success of their lives by trophies and plaques and certificates and pay raises and job performance reviews and car ownership and the right rims and the right relationships and the right girl and the right guy that we are teaching our children that their identity their success is wrapped up in nothing but sand nothing but sand so positively they are motivated that their name might be known to everyone that their name might be known to every generation. But negatively, we're given a second motivation that they're motivated to not be dispersed, to not be dispersed. That they come together and they say, let's, let's build a tower, a city that will, that will make our name for us lest we be dispersed. Now, that doesn't sound all that bad, does it? That doesn't sound all that bad. I mean, here they are, and they're comfortable. They're, they're with their homeboys. They're with their homegirls. I mean, they've, they've got deep relationships, right? That's what seems like that's what we would want. They know where to go and find their multivitamin Walgreens. They know where the coconut oil is at Piggly Wiggly in their neighborhood. They've developed a comfort. They've developed something that, that, that makes them want to not venture out, wants to, to stay together. And what's the problem with that? It's a direct rejection of the command of God. 
a direct rejection of the command of God. Do you remember what God said back in the garden when he made man and woman? What did he say? Be fruitful and multiply and spread among, and fill the earth, right? And fill the earth. Then he goes and he washes the earth with the flood and he saves the remnant in Noah. And Noah goes and he makes an offering to the Lord. And you remember what the Lord says? He repeats his command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That don't just stay and congregate in one city. Don't come and, and remain together in one place. No, be fruitful and multiply and disperse over the earth and fill the earth so that as you fill the earth, you might fill the earth with my reign, my dominion, my glory. But here they are and they thought they had a better idea. They thought, in other words, that they could rewrite the story better than God had wrote it. They believed that they could rewrite God's providence better than God had written it. I wonder if we've been tempted that way over the last week. As the economy hemorrhages, as your business dwindles, as you face hard decisions, as you face uncertainty in your health. I wonder if we've been tempted over the last week to see the providence of God and to think, God, I could have written it better than this. God, I could have written a better plan. God, I could have written a better story. It is the spirit of Babel in us when we take and believe that we can articulate the providence of God better than God himself. But it is the individualistic self-reliance. It is the same spirit of Babel when we choose our preferences. See, when we choose our preferences over God's plan, we're rewriting his story. The lie of our age is that if we just had greater freedom to do what we want to do, we would be happier. The lie of our age is that if we could just define morality for ourselves, then, then we could go and live a life that is satisfying, to live a life that is pleasing, live a life that is joyful and happy. And it's a lie. And we can know that it's a lie because there has never been a generation in the history of mankind that has had greater tolerance of immorality than our generation. There has never been a generation in the history of mankind that has greater tolerance of individualistic definitions of what is ethical, what is righteous, what is moral. And in the last 20 years, suicide rates have increased by more than 15%. That you have to be careful what you ask for or you might get it. That you have to be careful of placing your hopes in your own ability to define what is right and what is good and what is reasonable. Because when you live in a society that says, if that's what you want, just do it. Just go for it. Just, just go all in on your plan, on your dreams, on your story. And you get to the end of that story and realize that it's washed away like a sandcastle. You will fall into despair fall into despair and you'll keep trying to dig yourself out and dig yourself out and you'll keep trying to do good things and do good things and balance out the bad karma of your life only to find out you are drowning in the sandcastle that has collapsed in on you but it turns out to be quicksand see self-promotion leads to self-deception self-promotion leads to self-deception it's playing mind games with yourself to convince yourself that you're somebody that you're really not so that you can never end up becoming who you were meant to be. But not only are we self-promoting, we're self-preserving. 
Not only are we self-promoting, but we are self-preserving, that we attempt self-rescue in our lives. You see, this is a story about man-made religion contrasted with God-centered worship. You see, what we have to understand is that the term that's used for tower in Genesis 11 is referring to what would have been a religious temple in Babylon. In Babylon, they built these temples called ziggurats. And these ziggurats would be, uh, would be emblematic or, or they'd be very similar to what you've seen with like, a, uh, like a, an Egyptian pyramid. And they built them out of bricks and they would take them and the goal was to build them as many layers high as you could build them, to build them as high as you could build them so that ultimately you couldn't even see the top of it. It would be hidden up in the clouds, up in the heavens. In fact, the name Babylon, the name Babylon literally means gateway of the gods gateway of the gods. And so they would take and they would build these great structures and try to get them all the way into heaven. And what they were doing is they were trying to compromise the the heaven-earth divide. It's what man's always been trying to overcome. It's what man's always been trying to overcome. And they would build, and on the sides of these ziggurats, as you would go up, there would be steps. And so literally, they're building this stairway up into the heavens. And the thought is, the Babylonian thought, in fact, the American thought, is that if I can just get there, I can overthrow him. That if I can get to where the ruler is, that I will overcome that ruler. I will put that ruler to death. And having put that ruler to death, now I'm in charge. That there's a sense of entitlement among the Babylonians that they deserve to make decisions for themselves. That they deserve to be able to define morality as they wish it to be defined, to define righteousness as they wish it to be defined, and to not be held accountable by anyone. Is that not the goal of today? That if I can construct my own morality, then what I can do is I can construct a morality that aligns with the things that I want to do. I can construct a morality that aligns with my own sinful desires. I can construct a morality that I can easily live out and I can easily attain. Even if no one else can, I can. I can make myself a God in my own image. I can place myself on the throne and I cannot be held accountable to anyone then I can live how I want to live and then, then, then I can finally find happiness and satisfaction. You see, the reality of God requires a response. The reality of God requires a response. You either submit to him or you seek to overthrow him. You either submit to him or you seek to overthrow him. The rational response when you realize that there is one that is far greater than you. When you realize that there is one to whom all creation has, by whom all creation has been made and to whom all creation will answer. That there is one that holds all of us together. Every molecule of water, every, every, uh, every planet in the solar system, every, every idea in our minds, every, every fabric of society, every provision of food, every breath of oxygen. That when you realize that there is one that has made you and has made all of those things and is holding all of those things together, then, then the natural response is to bow down and to offer it all to him and say tell me what to do tell me where to go tell me how to live oh lord and i will do it but ever since the garden it is not the typical response it is not the natural response it is not the usual response 
That instead, that humankind has this weird propensity to respond to God by waving our fists and flexing our muscles and showing our teeth. That we have a, a tendency to look back to God and to respond with a demonstration and a display of our strength. To realize that there is a world so vast, a cosmos beyond our comprehension, heavens so far away. And just think, we look up and we think, I know better. I know wiser. I am stronger. Let me make decisions for me. Sometimes we try to overthrow God by putting him to death through atheism. The fastest growing religion in the United States is the religion of none. Did you know that? The fastest growing religion in the United States is the religion of none, the religion of naturalism, the religion of intellectualism, the, the religion of I know better than the, than, the, than the ancients. I know better than the, the eternity that has been written on my heart. The father of, who is largely considered the father of postmodern philosophy is a man by the name of Frederick Nietzsche. And Nietzsche's most famous statement was that God is dead. God is dead. And I think most of us, when we hear Nietzsche say that, and then we hear him, revision him, raising his fist up to heavens and wagging it at the heavens and saying, God, you are dead because I have put you to death. But that's not at all the spirit with which Nietzsche said that. In fact, Nietzsche wrote out that God was dead as a lament, as a lament. Having been raised in a Christian tradition, having been raised in a traditionally Christian country, he realized that though he did not believe in God, that there was something in humanity that, that needed God. And, and now he didn't know with this realization, with this enlightenment, that he now had this insight that he had realized how it is that man would be able to survive without a moral center. How man would be able to survive without a God there to answer their most profound questions and their, their hardest realities. And you see, what Nietzsche was bearing witness to is the same thing the scriptures say. That man was created for dependence upon God. That we were created for dependence upon God. That we aren't smart enough. We aren't wise enough. We aren't able enough. Our capacity is not great enough. Our lives are not long enough. Our morality is not pure enough. Now we were created with eternity written into our hearts with a longing for God so that if we begin to deny him, if we try to overthrow him and put him to death as the Babylonians did, as Nietzsche has declared, then what we will find is the death of our own souls. What we will find is the death of our own identities. What we will find is the death of our own thriving because we were designed at the hands of one that is wiser and greater and stronger and he has woven us together to work in the midst of his beautiful and sweet providence. But you know, though I'm sure there are some here and you are very much drawn into the draw of modern secularism and humanism and naturalism, I believe there's more of you that are tempted to overthrow God in a different way. You see, there is a way that you can seek to overthrow God by your own godliness. There is a way that you can seek to overthrow God by your activity in a D group. There is a way that you can seek to overthrow God by going on missions. 
There is a way that you can seek to overthrow God by, by fostering children, by working in soup kitchens, by coming and being faithful in the life of the church, by waking up every single morning and doing a quiet time. That you can look at your own unrighteousness and you can look up at God in his might and in his holiness and you can say, God, I've got this. God, I am disciplined enough. God, I am hardworking enough. God, I am thoughtful enough. God, I am repentant enough. God, I am praying enough. God, I am reading enough. God, I have my life under control. I am pious enough to deserve you. I don't need Christ. I don't need your provision. I don't need your grace. I don't need what you supply. This morning, I wonder when you look at your life and the conscience begins to accuse you, the conscience begins to condemn you, the conscience begins to bear down on you and tell you how you aren't measuring up and in all the ways that you failed and how impure your motives are and how poor your attitudes are. I wonder how it is you, you comfort your accusing conscience. Do you begin to declare out to your conscience, but I have done a lot of good, but I go to church every week, but I have a quiet time, but I go on missions, but I adopt, but I foster, but I have a quiet, but I have memorized scripture, but I have went and served in soup kitchens, but I have shared the gospel, but I, but I, but I, or, 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 rather than looking at your own wretched works, have you said, but Christ, but Christ, but Christ has died for me but God has provided my grace, but God has shown me mercy, but God has pardoned me, but God has justified me, but God has set me free. Have you overthrown him or have you submitted to him? See, self-preservation leads to self-destruction. Self-preservation leads to self-destruction. But where I want to land this morning is on the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel. That we are self-promoting and we are self-preservingly, self-preserving and terrifyingly, we are self-propelling. We are self-propelling. Here's what I mean. That left alone, what we see in Genesis uh, 3 and what we see in Genesis 4 and what we see in Genesis 6 and now what we see in Genesis 11, this is just what people do. This is just what people do. That we have begun down this path of sin, that we have went down this path that leads to our own destruction and we are self-propelled. We are continuing down that path. This is what comes natural to us. This is what comes good to us, that we will keep going and keep building and keep flexing, keep growling unless God intervenes. Unless God intervenes. That we are self-propelled, turning more and more inward as we go. But how gracious is the intervention of God. Now, there's a lot of irony here, okay? So remember, the, the Babylites have built up this, this tower that is supposed to be the greatest of all towers. This is a tower that is supposed to overcome the, the heaven-earth divide. The, the tower that is going to allow man to get all the way up into the heavens and overthrow God as though he is just another king of just another country. And do you see how God responds? God responds, well, let me come down there. Let me come down there. <laughs> it's like, is that the best you can do, bro? Is that as high as you can get that little tower of yours? You think, you, you think you've gotten close to heaven with that? That's a sandcastle, man. <laughs> Gone. 
So, so, so God says, God looks at their tower, he looks at their conspiracy, he looks how they're banding together, and he says, well, I guess I'll go down there. I'll go all the way down there. You see how measly our works are? You see how measly our righteousness is? You see how, how weak and feeble our strength is? You see how foolish our wisdom is? Do you, see, do you see how archaic our ingenuity is? That no matter how high you jump, no matter how high you build, no matter how strong you are, you can't get to where God is. That all have, fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, our best works, our strongest efforts, our wisest ideas don't get close to him. The tower is proof that the flood didn't work. See, the flood washed the earth clean. It was a reset for the creation. A reset with a man that God declared to have his favor. It was a, an opportunity to live without the temptation that had existed before. It was an opportunity to have a complete fresh start as, as a creation, a fresh start as humanity, fresh start as image bearers of God. And the very next, the very next chapter, we see the unfaithfulness of, of Noah and the sin of his son. The very next story we come to is here in Babel as man tries to overthrow God. It is the proof that you cannot fix mankind from the outside in. You can't cover us with water. You can't, you can't wipe us out. If there is one of us, if there are two of us, if there is just one family of us, if there is a remnant of us, we will corrupt the earth. We will corrupt one another. We will murder each other. We will outdo each other. We will strive and strive and build sandcastle after sandcastle, trying to heap over the throne of God. No, outside in won't work. I want you to hold on to that. We're coming back to it. And so God judges them. And their worst fear was that they would be dispersed over the earth, and so God disperses them over the earth. But what I want you to see, y'all, is this was grace. This was grace. That God's judgment is gracious. God should have wiped out the earth. He could have actually let them come before his throne. He could have let them scale if they wanted to by their own strength to get into the presence of his holiness. And when their eyes beheld him, they would have turned into pillars of salt in his presence. He could have let them turn in on themselves until ultimately they destroyed themselves. He could have let them continue together in their conspiracies and in their castle building and in their tower climbing until ultimately, ultimately they died among themselves, confusing among themselves, chaos among themselves. But instead, God caps sin. He caps sin's influence. He caps sin's capacity and he begins to disperse them over the earth and confusing their languages. See, God could have. He should have taken us out of the story. But he, instead, he kept us on script. He should have taken us out of the story, but instead, he kept us on script. We had to spread to the ends of the earth if we were to accomplish our purpose. And so God sends us where we weren't going on our own. He spreads us out over the earth as many nations, many peoples with many languages. We're still in 
the story. We shouldn't be in the story. We're still in the story. Grace, grace, grace. We're still in the story and the kingdom is still coming. The languages are confused and chaos has taken over. Washing the earth didn't fix. Baptizing the earth didn't fix it. Killing mankind didn't fix mankind. And then we get Acts 2. Then we get Acts 2. Y'all, then we get Acts 2. Stay with me. The promise of the new covenant was what? That God would not try to bring the law from the outside in, but that the heart of stone that was in the man would be transformed into a heart of flesh. And being transformed into the heart of flesh, it would have the very spirit of God to live in us and write the law of God in us, that it would transform us from the inside out. The law would be fulfilled. You remember how the Babylonians wanted to go and climb and ascend the throne of God and put God to death, God would descend himself and he would volunteer himself to be laid upon a cross where he would die voluntarily, willingly. But he wouldn't stay there. He wouldn't stay there that he would raise from the dead and he would walk across the ground upon which he was once buried and he would ascend up to the right hand of the Father, his rightful place where he would be exalted above everything else in all of the universe where the angels and the angelic beings and all of the heavenlies would declare his glory and, and, and the Spirit would be sent. The Spirit would be sent to inhabit the church and to dwell among the church. And do you remember the scene of Acts chapter 2 all of them had come speaking different languages all of them had come from afar and they couldn't understand each other and there was chaos except with the whoosh of a mighty wind the spirit swept across the church and as Peter preached that day on Pentecost every nation every tongue every confused sinner heard the gospel in their own Babel had been reversed. The church was moving forward. The plan was coming together. And where the tower was proof that the flood didn't reverse the curse, Pentecost is the proof that Jesus did reverse the curse. And now the song of redemption is more beautiful than even the beginning as many tribes and tongues and languages from all over the earth are being gathered together to sing praise and glory to the God that intervened. Long Live the king. Long live the king. In an era of confusion, long live the king. In the uncertainty of the coronavirus, long live the king. In the nervousness of the church, long live the king. In the uncertainty of the days ahead, long live the king. In the loss of our loved ones, long live the king. Long live the king. The King. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding 
our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.